Mary Poppins, practically perfect in every way. Be the miners. Sure, they're like three years old. Miners, not miners. If you eliminate the impossible, whatever remains, however improbable, must be the truth. <laughs> I don't, don't want to kill you. What would I do without you? Every time someone says, I do not believe in fairies, somewhere there's a fairy that falls down we dead. We women who aren't afraid to fight, to stand up for our dignity. Transference is inevitable, sir. Every human being has an impact. There are no colored bathrooms in this building and a simple string of pearls. Well, I don't own pearls. Lord knows you don't pay colors enough to afford pearls. History of evolution has taught us it's that life will not be contained. Life finds a way. Words are, in my not so humble opinion, our most inexhaustible source of magic. Hello and welcome, or welcome back. This is Bite the Pen. I'm Jen. Sometimes I forget our intro. I'm Jen Hansen, and sitting nearby is Miss Charlotte Martinez. Hello, Charlotte. Hello, Jen Hansen. How's it going? Oh, it's fabulous today birds chirping <laughs> sun shining i smell like like polishing alcohol uh, but it's a nice smell don't get me wrong <laughs> anyway last episode we talked about a number of things that had to do with dragons because that's what we're doing right now we talked about the greek dragons beowulf saint george that crazy saint george <laughs> smog the Reluctant Dragon, the animated short by Disney. And we talked to our special guest, May, Laura May, <laughs> who told us about the dragon riders of Pern. Did I miss anything? That's it. It didn't seem like a lot, but now that you said the list, I'm like, wow. Yeah. We got through a lot. We did. <laughs> we were only recording for like five hours, so I mean, you know. <laughs> So today we're going to look at the more modern and namely film sources. Do you want to remind us about anything before we jump in? That we're talking about dragons as they pertain to storytelling, and we are going through the evolution of particularly the Western dragon, which last time we talked about was European origins, and then we follow them to the Western world in America through popular media and literature. So we did literature. We're now going to focus on media. And just to say it now, because commenters may say it later, we're only taking a little bit of the movies out there about dragons or with dragons. So, you know, if you think of some, you could definitely send us some notes. But there's so many at this point that we kind of just decided by what we were interested in, right? Yeah, and we, we talked about what seemed significant in one way or another. Right. So I think it's a combination of what we actually like, or not even like, what we actually were interested in learning more about and sources that stuck out. Now shall you deal with me, O oh Prince, and all the powers of hell! <laughs> well, let's pick it up in 1959. It was a beautiful year. We watch Sleeping Beauty, or as I would prefer to call it, Maleficent, Mistress of All Evil, which is what they called her in the movie. But it's not really her story. But we're going to talk about her. So I'm going to give you all some brief background information. Charlotte is going to give us the summary, and then we'll kind of break into it like usual. So it came out in 1959, as I said. I'm not going to go through the like super long list of people who like produced, developed, 
the story, did the music and editing. Disney usually has big teams of people. But don't worry, they were all men. Uh, it's actually a significant <laughs> it's actually a significant film for some of the technical aspects behind the lens, which I'm also not going to get into because that's not what we do here. But I will say that it was inducted into the National Film Registry by the Library of Congress, and it was described as culturally, historically, or aesthetically significant, whatever that means. I don't know about aesthetically significant. I don't know how that earns you, but I would imagine it's more culturally but i don't know i don't know how that works interesting yes so that's just a little teeny tiny bit about the movie itself it's also a musical you didn't know that <laughs> really like sleeping beauty the musical no i mean like they're singing in oh it. <laughs> meaning it's considered <laughs> in the genre it's considered a musical the definition is the music develops the plot right there you go shall i share the summary now mm -hmm. of this unnecessarily complex plot. <laughs> so if you wouldn't mind then telling us the summary of this plot, which I've heard is very simple. Excellent. That is correct. <laughs> King and queen have just had a child, Princess Aurora, who has been gifted with grace and beauty by fairies Flora, Fauna, and Meriwether. Meriwether is about to present her gift when the evil mistress, Maleficent, interrupts. Dun, dun, dun. Maleficent casts a spell on Aurora. On her 15th birthday, she will prick her finger on the spindle of a spinning wheel and die. Sucks. It does suck. I mean, like, why? Right? <laughs> like, what? We, we, Jen and I talked about it. It was like, why a spinning wheel? Was that just like a creative thing? Was there just a spindle in the room or that was a common object? Anyway, that's thinking too much into it. <laughs> So Maleficent disappears and Meriwether adjusts her spell, saying that Aurora will not die, but go into a deep sleep until she is woken by true love's kiss. Approximately 14 years, 11 months, 3 weeks, and 6 days go by. The fairies have been raising Aurora in the woods to keep her hidden. And of course, what happens? But a prince comes along while Aurora is picking berries. And after a fabulous waltz, which I really do love still. They fall in love. So cute. Yes, because it only takes one dance to do that. That's how it works. Yeah. But Aurora scurries away to return to the fairies who have prepared a birthday surprise. And surprise, Aurora tells them she's in love. <laughs> and surprise, they tell her she's a princess and must return to her kingdom. Happens every day. That's like too much in one day. She's like, what? So everybody else decided my future except me. Thank you very much. Yeah. Welcome to womanhood. Right. Oh, my God. We could even talk. Yeah. We could talk about this movie in so many different metaphors. Yeah. Amen. We're just talking about the dragon today, people. <laughs> Meanwhile, Maleficent has discovered Aurora's hideout and waits for her at the fairy's cottage. But it's poor timing because Aurora is back in her kingdom where she's to be presented to her betrothed who Aurora doesn't realize is the same man from the woods. But also, no need to wait at the cottage, Maleficent, because the spell still takes effect. Aurora is made to prick her finger. She falls asleep. The prince, meanwhile, has been imprisoned by Maleficent, but the fairies break him out. And angered, Maleficent turns into a dragon to stop the prince. But the fairies cast a spell on the princess's sword, and then he launches it into Maleficent's heart. So the dragon dies, the prince kisses Aurora awake, and everyone lives happily ever after. Except for Maleficent. 
I mean, I'm sure the bottom of the cavern where she toppled was pretty nice. <laughs> Isn't that a similar ending to Snow White with the witch, the stepmother witch, where it's falling off a cliff or something? I believe you. I honestly don't remember that movie at all. Interesting. Yes. <laughs> Same with Scar. Scar falls off. Yes. That one I remember. It seems to be like a little motif thing here. Poor Scar. <laughs> falling off of cliffs into caves. Yep happens you know it's pretty common so before we get started on that i guess i do want to mention one aspect which i was surprised by because i haven't seen this since i was a kid which is that there's a lot of mention of evil and hell and these strongly used words with big associations to them that wouldn't be used now although maybe they would because Crollo uses that verbiage doesn't he he talks about hell right but it's been some time since Quasi too, hasn't it? It has, like 20 years. I don't know if they would do that today. I, I feel like you're right. It would be risky. Yeah. So it's interesting to have that as the background because there is a lot of really great symbolism in the movie, you know, just the use of color. But then you have like the sword that you just mentioned, which was magicked. And that was the sword of truth. And he has a shield of virtue and those are the things that kill the evil from hell, which is this woman who is turned into a dragon. It's kind of like St. George in that way, where there's really prominent images that elicit very specific things. Yes. They must have been conscious of that. I mean, there's a red cross on his shield, for goodness sake, and that's what George is associated with. White horse. All of that. Copy, paste. Copy, paste. <laughs> yeah. So do you want to break us into what you thought? Yeah, well, as far as Maleficent and shape-shifting into a dragon, that seems to be a bit of an archetype because it's been used enough, I think, where it's a evil mistress, let's call her, shapeshifter. For example, Tiamat, the goddess that we talked about last time, she wasn't a dragon until there was a need to be in battle, in which case dragon is what she chose in order to fight her enemy. And this is a very similar thing where she's an all-powerful woman who is able to shapeshift. It, it seems like Maleficent could have done any beast and she chose dragon because it is very powerful and intimidating and ancient. Yeah. And then the other time I remember seeing that is Enchanted. Did you ever watch Enchanted? It's been a while, but yeah. And the stepmother there turns into a dragon for the climax. Oh, I don't remember that at all. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it was sort of a... Anticlimactic? Anticlimactic. It was anticlimactic. <laughs> Thank you, gotcha. Jen. Because she was such a great character and enchanted and, I mean, still semi-flat, but kind of witty and modern. And then to turn into a dragon at the end was like, okay... Because that feels like a cop-out for that for that particular movie. Hmm. So it seems to be used. How did you feel about that being used here? It brings up a lot of different things. I mean, especially the fact that she's like a witch slash sorcerer slash evil character. And she's female. And the female turning into the dragon. Like, there's a lot of interesting routes that that image seems to go in you know like there's the dragon lady and there's a lot of different things there and i'm guessing that at least part of it is enhanced because of this movie because this is just striking image to see an evil woman in particular which disney really likes they like their evil witches <laughs> turning into this like ginormous creature that the prince 
obviously could never defeat because it's big and it's old and it breathes fire. Plus Maleficent had like lightning powers, which were really cool. Yeah. And she had her crow do some of her bidding for her. Like she had quite a few things that could have saved her. So it really does like reinforce that savior archetype, which, you know, I find very annoying. Agreed. And then it's interesting because when Jen and I rewatched it this time, and I think I said it out loud where I was like, you're right, the prince doesn't actually do much of anything. The fairies <laughs> are the antithesis of Maleficent in this story. And they get very little credit for it because that's not the image that people think of when they think of Sleeping Beauty. They do everything. I mean, yeah, anybody watch, rewatch the movie <laughs> and pay attention to the, the three pixies because they are the opposite of Maleficent in that way, which is just as magical, but on supposedly on the other side, which is the good side. So if you break it down, it really is Maleficent against the fairies. It has nothing to do with the princess or the prince or the nagging fathers and parents who want to get them married. Nothing to do with that. Yeah. It is always those dualities. It's true. I didn't remember that either, but yeah, like the the fairies are the ones that raise her. The whining parents don't raise her. And then, yeah, when it comes down to it, I mean, they're the whole middle of the film, basically. They like are trying to protect her and they're trying to keep things safe for her. And they even don't use their own magic because we didn't really figure that out. But I'm pretty sure the implication was that if they use magic, Maleficent would be able to find them. Right. That sounds right. So, or they just didn't want her to know that they were, ma I don't know. I don't know why they did that, but it, there's like a great sacrifice that they make that again, nobody else is making it. I'm sort of interested, or maybe I have a question for you because I was trying to research it and nothing really came up except for one researcher in a documentary who mentioned that there was a less popular theory of dragon as woman, woman as dragon. And the thing she said was that there's a possibility that once Christianity took over, the dragon also became a symbol for the mysterious feminine and a suppression of women's sexuality because most men who ran everything, right, involved in Christianity, it is the hierarchy of men running everything, that they would consider the mysterious aspect of women's sexuality to be bestial, like a dragon. And if dragons were being used for anything evil or anything not Christian, then maybe that's a little bit of a, an association with the feminine. But there's not, I mean, there's really not that much out there about that, except for the dragon lady term, which I did not research. Could you describe what dragon lady is? Like what that means, what that is? I can definitely try. I also did not like specifically look for that, but I know my own understanding of it, which is a woman that is in power, who is very cold or mean or aggressive, doesn't get along with her peers, very Meryl Streep in The Devil Wears Prada, you know, this kind of awful person, but she has a high status, so people listen. I like what you said about that documentary that you saw about it being the feminine that's being suppressed, right? Yes. I liked that because I feel like that's something you can see translated into now, and whether or not that was the intention at the time, it doesn't mean that it wasn't also present. And we've seen through, you know, the research that we have done and the sources all before this, that dragons seem to stay in the collective unconscious. They come back and sometimes it's faster than other times, but they do continue to come back because there is some sort of deep emotional or 
psychological connection to these like mystical beasts that have apparently done some like awful things <laughs> according to our stories, you know? Yes, yes. But they're always powerful. I mean, it always takes a lot of strength or courage or combination of those things or even a teamwork to be able to defeat the dragon when it's the bad dragon. We obviously right. didn't see that in Dragon Riders of Pern because they were good, which is nice. Yay. <laughs> yeah, that's the reforming of the myth, right? Exactly. So when I think of Dragon Lady in terms of the modern sense, I definitely think of her as powerful. And it makes a lot of sense that in the Sleeping Beauty Disney version, you have two different sets of women, Maleficent and the fairies, who both are able to harness magic. And Maleficent is obviously the more powerful, but maybe not quite as clever, although she is pretty clever. They give her a lot of power, and she's very serious and focused, and she knows what she wants, and she's doing that. Whereas the fairies are kind of comedic and bumbling and sweet and more like mothers. But in the end, they still are the ones that defeat her for the most part. Like, like we said, like, you know, the face of it is the prince, but they're still giving women power, but it's that sort of backhanded power, right? Where it's like, mm -hmm. you are a magical being as long as you just stay in your box. Because <laughs> the movie's not about you, but you'll have to be the action doers. Yes, because that's what we're telling you to do. Yeah, I did think about some of the collective unconscious symbolism that goes with dragon and woman. And there are a lot of parallels. If you're thinking of a dragon as in dormant from a golden age, there wasn't that many matriarchies in history, of course, but women were always in existence, maybe somewhat like dragons, like a dormant volcano, it will explode at some point because it needs to equal out the atmosphere. That'll happen similarly with women. I'm sure it has happened, but hopefully in a bigger sense, it will happen soon where there's like a rebalancing of nature. Like, oh, we see that we're too masculine. Let's release the dragon. Let's <laughs> erupt the volcano. There's a lot of metaphors there. Meanwhile, we just lay dormant. I don't know. Well, and most of the time when we are, I'm trying to follow your metaphor, unleashing the volcano, there are all these dragon slayers there waiting. Mm. to make sure that mm -hmm. you, don't, you don't get too far. And I think that's the difficult part. It's easy to say, like, people aren't doing enough or women just need to cut their shit out, which I also believe. But it's also because there's, like, a row of princes with their little fairy creatures hanging <gasps> around trying to get you back. Fascinating. Yeah, that's absolutely true. That's a great metaphor. Oh, not to mention that in this scenario where the dragon is guarding a boon or a treasure. The treasure is Sleeping Beauty. My prez is this lady who fell asleep. Let me wake her up so I can claim her. Yeah, that's pretty much it. <laughs> Look at these scales, these ridges. And the dragon gets this old. It knows nothing but pain, constant pain. He grows decrepit, crippled, pitiful. Spiteful. You are the last. My time is over. Strike! You are my friend. Ben is my friend? 
Strike, please! I can't. Then I will make you. So the next two films we're going to talk about, we're going to discuss them as a unit. So I can tell you about the first one, and then do you want to give us a summary? And then we'll talk about the second one and the summary, and then we'll discuss them in correlation to each other. Sounds good. Cool. So Dragon Slayer came out in 1981. It was directed by Matthew Robbins from a screenplay he wrote with Hal Barwood. It stars a bunch of people you don't know. It was co-produced by Paramount Pictures and Disney, which I thought was interesting. That's not usually a team you see, or at least I don't think it is. Uh, the directing, writing, editing, music, cinematography, and producers were all men. And in my particular opinion, it shows. <laughs> I would call it like a B-Dragon movie. It's my best description. That's really good. Yeah, it's called a cult film. And I think B-film works a lot better than cult film. I don't, I don't like the idea that there are people that like love this movie. <laughs> Neither do I. Yeah. <laughs> do you want to tell us about it? So a wizard and his young apprentice are asked to use magic to kill a dragon who has been feeding off damsels as they are being sacrificed in their village. Before the journey, however, the wizard is killed. So the task must then go to the apprentice who has no idea how to use magic and relies instead on this magical object that belonged to his master. So his first attempt to kill the dragon is unsuccessful. When he attempts again, the apprentice conjures his wizard master, who has left him a key clue in defeating the dragon, which is that a dragon can only die if the last wizard dies as well. So in, I didn't mention this, in the universe, the dragon is where to understand the last dragon in the region, and the wizard is the last wizard in the region, and they're somehow bonded together, so if one dies, the other will. It's mentioned very, very briefly at the beginning, but you need to know that to understand what's happening at the end. So essentially, the wizard master defeats the dragon and self-sacrifice, but it's done very dramatically because it's unnecessarily long scene of the dragon going into the sky, the wizard conjuring lightning, and meanwhile, the apprentice is watching with his girlfriend on the mountainside, and they're like, ooh, what's happening? I feel like that was to promote graphics. That must have been what those scenes were for because we couldn't see what was happening and understand it. It was more like, oh, it's the sky and lightning is cracking all through it. and Which is what we'll see in the, the one that goes with this film. Same, same yes. sort of thing. Interesting. You're right. Yes, this will be a motif at this time, apparently. So anyway, the wizard does die in sacrifice and so does Ooh. the dragon. <laughs> Everybody dies. Yay. So afterwards, the apprentice leaves the kingdom because it remains just as awful and unchanged as before. But he is now accompanied by a brave young woman who aided him throughout the journey. And maybe we'll mention her character because it was like the only interesting part of the film. The end for that one. Yeah, we'll definitely have to talk about that for sure. Uh, the other film that goes along with this is Dragonheart. It came out in 1996, which is some years after 81. It was directed by Rob Cohen, and the script was by Charles Pogue. I believe that's how you say it. This one isn't much better than Dragon Slayer, which is sad, me, because it's literally 16 years later. And it's all men, except for the producer. She's one of a couple different producers, but she sounds really cool. Her name is Raffaella De Laurentiis, and she's produced a lot of films like this, um, including Conan the Barbarian and Dune. And her whole family, I just, I kind of went down a tunnel with her. Her whole family is pretty interesting. Uh, her 
father is a famous was a famous director her sister she was like a really well-renowned chef it's a really interesting family and they're italian so they're cool <laughs> and then dennis quaid is the lead and of course famously sean connery is the voice of the dragon awesome so do you want to tell us about Dragonheart? A bratty, cruel king-to-be is mortally injured and saved by an ancient dragon who bonds itself with the boy. Meaning if one dies, the other dies. Here it is again. <laughs> when the bratty king remains bratty, his mentor blames the dragon and devotes his life to killing all dragons out of revenge. Because, like, why not? Years later, when the mentor comes across the same dragon, both man and beast are so bitter about their lives that they team up and create a scheme. So the scheme is that the dragon appears in a village. The villagers think that they're doomed. The mentor says that he can kill the dragon. Dragon and mentor play out a false dragon slaying. And mentor is paid for his heroics. And they repeat that. We only see that done like once or twice, but we get that that's what they team up to do, which is that they both have an advantage here where they're, they're playing it out just to have rewards given to them by the villagers, which is kind of clever, but also like, ouch, that's messed up. Yeah. Unfortunately, they can't keep it up because the bratty king has become so evil that he must be killed. And the dragon knows this. Even though Mentor and Dragon have bonded like compadres, <laughs> The dragon asks the mentor to kill him so the evil king can also die. The mentor does this by stabbing the dragon in the heart. Dragon and king both die. The end. That's like a minimal plot, I know, but... Sums it up perfectly. Cool. So we should talk about these things. <laughs> these two interesting little movies. So cringeworthy sometimes. <laughs> yeah, we definitely have some direct similarities between the two with these really bratty main characters they are different like one is royalty and the other one is just a regular person but they both have the same sort of like attitude i don't know obviously the one in dragonheart is worse but neither are likable and i don't think the one in dragonheart is supposed to be but the one in dragon slayer definitely was supposed to be yeah, because he was an apprentice. It had nothing to do with ruling over anybody. He was just trying to impress his mentor. So, like, why was he bratty, right? Like, why was he so whiny and weird? <laughs> he was very whiny. Hmm. That is stereotypical when you're thinking of the dragon lore, especially from the chivalrous age, where you do have bad kings or bad rulers and good kings and good rulers. And they're, like, rewarded or punished based on how they rule people. But it is, it's interesting also to bring, because both of these movies, I feel, are very influenced by the Celtic, that Arthurian time, where the myth of the magic was that dragons were very much associated with anybody who could harness magic. It, they were, like, of the same age, therefore they're bonded. So both movies take advantage of that, and they say if one dies, then the other will. So it brings a, a new conflict, which is, like, if we like the person with magic, then it's kind of sucks that they have to choose either to die together or live together where the duality here is good and evil and one of them may be really good and you don't want them to die or they might be like in dragon heart where the dragon is a benevolent dragon and you don't want to see the dragon die but you do want to see the king die so there's like a little absolutely. switch going on it is it's interesting yes absolutely that's what i was just thinking I'm not sure if in dra if this is true in Dragon Slayer was it the was it supposed to be the last dragon or was it just the dragon in the area? 
I actually, I don't know. It was a similar idea, though, that this area needed to be cleared of a dragon in Dragon Slayer. And in Dragon Heart, the dragon knew that people would be coming after him. And he wanted to stay alive because he was the last one. So either way, you're still dealing with like a similar setup in a lot of ways. Yeah. Whether the dragon was good or bad, they were both the last of their kind. And depending on somebody with magic, or depending on magic being bonded to somebody, I should say. Right. Which it's very, yeah, it's very interesting. It could have been so much better in both of them, but I guess specifically Dragonheart. It was like half of the movie was really dark. The main character was awful to people. Or I don't know if he's, he's not the main character, but he's the the dude that's supposed to be the main character. <laughs> the mentor? Um, no? Oh, the king. The king. I, it's hard to call him a king because he's so bratty, but the things he does are really awful. She, he's really horrible to people. And then the other half is this like bumbling Sean Connery dragon and it feels like two different films and they're not interwoven very well. I would agree. I think that you're right there was potential especially with the mentor's character because both him and the dragon share this bitterness that their golden ages are over and they used to be the chivalrous knight and the terrible but intelligent dragon from an age where they were actually respected as such. But all that's gone now and the king is this awful thing and the people aren't, they're not even worth saving. I mean, the villagers are sometimes just as awful. So you're wondering like, well, then what do we fight for? And the mentor is having that internal dialogue because he tells the dragon that. And he's like, well, then, you know, what is there to live for? And the dragon's like, you're right. There is nothing to live for. So they bond <laughs> in that way. And that's an interesting mm -hmm. new concept. They become con artists, right? From heroes to con artists. Yeah. And, you know, of course, in the end, they turn selfless again. They realize that maybe they do have to act heroically, but... Only one has to die. Apparently the mentor's fine. He gets his romantic love in the end. He does kill the dragon, but he's like, all right, it had to be done. He didn't want to, to be fair. That's true. But still sucks. Can we talk about the female characters in Dragon Slayer? Yes, please. Thank you. I was hoping we would. <laughs> Those are, I think, the things that really actually kept me watching. Otherwise, I think I would have really zoned out a lot more. Uh, but... I was really surprised. Like, Dragon Slayer came out in 1981, which is not that long ago, but it was still, like, the film industry. And we have a female character who is cross-dressed as a man, which she doesn't do very well. I mean, they obviously, they made her look very girly, but that being said, she's treated with, with respect for the most part up until that point. How they end up going with her storyline is really disappointing. But up until that point, it's really refreshing, to be honest, to see a character like that. What did you think? I absolutely agree. That movie would have been unwatchable without her character. And just that little percent of feminine power, which I would say was more than Dragonheart, by the way. Oh, yeah. Because she speaks up through the whole movie, even if her village is completely awful, which they are. They're the ones that I mentioned go unchanged in the end. And that's why they leave. Like there's no nothing has changed in the village. So there's nothing to do here. And it makes sense that she wants to leave with, quote unquote, the hero, because she also realizes that. I mean, she helped, if not like was a huge key in killing the dragon. Yeah. <laughs> what was it? But what was I going to say about her character? 
um oh that she she turns around the the maiden sacrifice a little bit here too mm. the archetype of that maiden sacrifice she's very courageous throughout the entire film like she goes to the dragon's den to collect scales to make a shield she does that on her own meanwhile whiny dude is just whining somewhere um <laughs> And you're right. She, I mean, this the scene that they set up was really fascinating where the village or whatever is there and the king is there and they've got this like, it's basically a lottery to figure out who will be sent to be eaten by the dragon. And he's sworn up and down that his daughter is in the mix. It's very Hunger Games in that way, where it's like one of each whatever. It's like a virginal girl, right? Yes. Is that what they were? Yeah. Yeah. Not even children, but the coming of age girl is yeah. put into the lot. And this is why the character was cross-dressing. Yeah. Because we don't have enough problems to deal with. <laughs> Gosh. <laughs> and, you know, he swears to it. And then he picks a thing out of, or somebody picks a thing out of the thing. Do you, what am I trying to say? <laughs> picks the name out of a hat. Let's call it. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, and, and she's in the crowd. Our cross-dressing female friend is in the crowd and actually, like, is like, no, you're a liar. Like, you, you're you not doing the one thing that you said you would be doing, which is that everyone sacrifice may have to sacrifice for the village. And they give a lot of power to the king's daughter, to the princess. She, once she's made aware of things, she becomes a very strong character. She's another one in the film where I was like, okay that's kind of cool she wants to be in in the selection she's not that annoying ditzy princess who's like bitching about everything that you usually see she's like no i i should be in it as well because i'm this is my kingdom also very strong female characters yeah and then they undo that <laughs> yeah yes of course both of them they sort of undo that power that was there to begin with but I think the reason I want to talk about it and mention it at all is because those are unique attributes that we haven't seen in these other dragon stories. Women are either not present at all or they're evil. And in this case, neither. It was refreshing for sure. And I would even recommend the movie for that reason, just to see what, what the potential was for those female archetypical characters that we hadn't seen before. Because it's Obviously, it's done away with in the 80s with Dragonheart because that's out the window. I definitely, if you are going to watch this movie, which I don't know if I recommend it, watch that aspect and see what you think about it and let us know, you know? And in Dragonheart, we also have a reference to the constellation. Draco? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm not, I don't remember why, why they referenced that. Was that to like connect to the wisdom of the dragon's age i don't remember but it is the one instance that i've seen that connected back to that and i haven't seen that in any other modern sources so i thought that was really interesting i'm pretty sure it's the scene where the dragon is convincing the mentor that he must fight this final battle because it, it feels like that lion king scene where you're staring up at the stars and saying like what do you see and in this case it's the dragon who's wiser than the man and convincing him, like, there is something to fight for. You are worth it. Which, surprisingly, I feel like that should be the other way around. You know, with Sean Connery's voice, it does feel very fatherly. <laughs> mm -hmm. So, I get it. And this is the first time we do see the wise mentor dragon, for sure. Mm. Dragonheart also has 
quite a few characters from Harry Potter in it, so that's neither here nor there, but we were both surprised, like, Lupin is in it, and he's the the jerk king, and he does it really well, and was like, yeah. oh, okay, I don't know how you got hired as Lupin, because Lupin is so, like, sweet, but good job. I thought he did a great villain. Um, did you have anything that you wanted to talk about? I sort of touched on it a little bit, but the age that they're referencing here is, again, it's post golden age i would say of the chivalrous knight and i feel like both endings of the movies have something to say about the worthiness of the society being saved Hmm. it is very gray the people that are under the siege of the dragons each time they don't feel like they're worthy of being saved to me It, it all feels very medieval in that way nobody's moving forward with anything and their beliefs of christianity or like whatever Or they're very arrogant about it and power hungry about it. And, you know, sacrifice of children is a big deal. And and that doesn't seem to change their morality in any way. I'm just thinking in terms of the endings, because it was surprising to me to to see that. And I'm trying to figure out what the movies were, were trying to say to the audience about that. In each case, the dragon played a different role. Dragon Slayer, it was a very flat, evil, beastly dragon. Does not talk, does not communicate, acts out of fury. We've seen that before. That's the typical Western dragon. Where in Dragonheart, we get the opposite of that. Ancient, on the same level of human intelligence, if not more. Maybe a little cocky and corny as far as... I mean, Jen and I were saying that a comedian could have played the voice of this, right? And they were even thinking about that. Robin Williams. Yeah, which would have been interesting. Yeah, much different feeling to it. Absolutely. But even he seemed to be um, more worthy of surviving by the end than some of the people he was saving. Yeah, I think especially, I don't quite remember exactly the ending of Dragonheart, but the end of Dragonslayer was very confusing. It was like really upbeat, but it was like a, a total downer. Like, it was a really awful ending, but it was, it, like, had the music, and it, it made it feel like it was a really happy ending. I didn't understand that at all. Yeah, thank God I wasn't the only one super confused by that. I think by the end, I was just happy that the female character was alive. One survived, thank goodness. <laughs> For some reason, I think with Dragon Slayer more so than with Dragonheart, it really does sort of remind me of St. George. Those stories feel very similar. I feel like they hit similar beats, even if they're not the exact same story, obviously. But it really did feel like it was a throwback to that, which is interesting because that's kind of the one that I would have thought they would tie it in with, like, the constellation and some of the older history in terms of dragons. But no. Some of that's confusing, to say the least. Yeah. (laughs) And I think you mentioned this, but in Dragonheart, we really do have for the first time a dragon. I mean, not for the first time, I guess the first time talking, but we have a dragon that has a lot of personality. The reluctant dragon had quite a bit of personality, but this one was was more of a personified. Right, which I, yeah, and I I think we mentioned in Pern, it's equal human intelligence. And that, that definitely puts it as a character rather than a beast. Um, And that's established very early on in Dragonheart. Maybe if they had picked somebody other than Dennis Quaid. I feel like actually a lot of the casting should have been a little bit different. Mm. I think they should have cast a comedian for the dragon and somebody else for Dennis Quaid. Yeah. I mean, I think the juxtaposition of like awfulness and comedy might have been what it actually needed, even though that feels more separated 
that would like be saying something but as it is it's just stupid comedy like it's not good comedy and then the other half is really kind of dark and it's like okay (laughs) why are we being silly while things are being it just doesn't feel right i don't know how to describe it i second that it doesn't feel right it's like if in aladdin the genie was played by sean connery it just wouldn't (laughs) work quite as well you'd be like okay like okay yeah robin williams would have done magic with this movie it would have been a cult movie if it was robin williams or mainstream i feel like the people that we've talked to or some of the people that we know really like this film and i think that if i had seen it as a kid i probably would have too and i think because it was sort of new in terms of the graphics at the time that definitely does not translate to now but i think i would have enjoyed it probably if i had seen it as a kid knowledge is the only weapon we've got left in the beginning it was ignorance that destroyed us I saw the first, but soon the world saw millions. No one knew how they spawned so fast. They swarmed like locusts, burning everything in their path, driven by one purpose, to feed. We've kind of been talking about this film throughout. Reign of Fire came out in 2002. It has Matthew McConaughey, Christian Bale, Isabella Scarpoco, score. You get it. (laughs) I can't say her name. (laughs) Gerard Butler, Alexander Siddig, and Alice Krieg. It was directed by Rob Bowman, who is a very special person in my heart because he did a lot of X-Files episodes, and he also directed some The Next Generation Star Trek. The film pretty much suffers from the same issues that I mentioned in the other intros to these films. Three screenwriters, two story developers, all four people listed for the music, the cinematography, and both editors were all male. So why don't you tell us the summary? We begin in London in the year 2000. Young Quinn visits his mother in her workplace, which is an underground cave where workers are tunneling. When he wanders too deep, Quinn inadvertently wakes an ancient plague, a male dragon who has been dormant since the Jurassic Age. Now awake, the dragon begins a cascade of dragon egg seeding, which multiplies their species. Within, I think, 20 years go by, right? Or is it 10? I think it's 20. Because he was like 11. Yeah, that makes more sense. So within 20 years, <laughs> the resulting hundreds of female dragons, if not thousands, we're, quite, we're not quite sure, from the male's continuous seeding take over the planet. And then the surviving pockets of humans include Quinn, who has established himself as a leader of a community right outside of London. So when their community is visited by rogue American military, Quinn's community is divided. Some want to follow the Americans to London as they attempt to kill the male dragon, and then some want to believe Quinn, who warns them that an attack would only attract the dragon back to their community. And of course, Quinn is correct. That's exactly what happens. The London attack is unsuccessful, and then a lot of Quinn's community is killed because of it. So now bent on revenge, Quinn and the surviving Americans devise a plan. They will attack the male dragon at sundown. When the dragon's sight is weakest, Quinn conquers his childhood trauma and confronts the dragon once again in London. And with the help of the Americans, he waits until the dragon is about to blow fire and he releases an arrow into the dragon's mouth, killing it. We assume that with the male dead, that all the humans now have a chance of killing off the rest of the dragons who can't reproduce anymore without the male. 
it is an interesting. I I really enjoy the movie, and sometimes violence is too much for me. But actually, this one this one does it so tastefully, <laughs> seamless and enjoyable, and the morals are all there despite it being a dystopian setting. It just feels good. By the end, I feel very cathartic. Yeah, I really liked it. What about you? Yeah, this is one of my favorite in terms of our list of movies here. I saw this a few years ago and I was really surprised I'd never heard of it. It's it's not like it's the best film ever, but they actually successfully make you feel things. <laughs> yeah. Like there are funny parts that make you laugh and there are sort of like emotional moments that make you kind of frightened and then there's the action parts that are actually really effective and you have people self-sacrificing for the for the good of the others and people who before maybe weren't willing to change end up changing they're not necessarily reward i mean some are rewarded yeah i'm gonna yeah some are rewarded for it and some it's sort of like a parting gift you know it's well done what i feel is unique about this film is the science behind the dragon characters here not i mean obviously they're not characters they're more like the antagonist force in the background because they they're not on screen all that much except for the end it is a very character heavy film which again is why i like it but how they use the dragons is fascinating do you want to talk about that they kind of give you a very quick introduction to the dragons and like what happens in history so that part tells us that they are fire dragons that they swarm that they focus on feeding that they're evil terrible they're older than dinosaurs that they survived the ice age and that they had been waiting for earth to replenish itself underground and there are thousands of them and humans would be destroyed by them basically but as the dragons become hungrier and hungrier, they're starving because all the people are gone. They're becoming more and more dangerous and doing more than they were before, I guess. It doesn't seem like there's much many people left. So I love. Yeah. And I love that they do that. It feels like it could be corny as far as like a montage and explaining the world. But I mean, all dystopian movies have something like that. Any like zombie alien or dinosaurs, anything involving that has some sort of montage to explain it they have to right <laughs> I, yeah and i love i love that they bring in like clips from the myths that i was talking about where these early civilizations they all talk about dragons i mean unconsciously right and one of their explanations in the montage is that it happened even during ancient times and even before that they were the reasons the dinosaurs went extinct and before yeah. that the ice age thing so it, they have every epoch, I would say, in time, the dragons reemerge. And their goal is, like you said, to feed on whatever's replenished on the planet. Very clever. Very. And I think makes a lot of sense in that way. So whoever did the science behind that was like on it. It was cool. And they talk about the dragons have to be basically awakened. So it's not like a bear where they go to hibernate and then they wake up at some point. They literally have to be discovered once again for them to all sort of reemerge, which I think is really interesting. I don't know how that looks, but it does speak a lot about people and our habits of being so cyclical in our nature. Obviously, after 20 years, the humans that are surviving are accustomed to some of that and, and know how to act and what to do. And there's even this prayer that they establish within their community because there's a lot of children in it 
Whereas like, what do you do when you see a dragon? But it's a way of life. They've been under it for so long that it's a way of life and they don't know what else to do. But anytime like they're closing before they go to bed and then later we get to hear the prayer again in a much more high stress situation, you have all these little kids and the people that are helping raise them saying this prayer together and it kind of becomes like their their strength, which feels very human. Maybe that's part of it is this one feels so much more human to me than the other ones. Yes. I mean, well, they do classify the genre as fantasy probably right i think so it does feel more like sci-fi to me but yeah that's what i'm thinking that maybe that's why it feels different because it has more of the rules of sci-fi and dragons just happen to be the catalyst for that even though it's done well very well according to wikipedia which you know is the end-all be-all it is a dystopian (laughs) post-apocalyptic science fantasy film there we go I have an interesting comment about the psychological discussion, and it comes with the sci-fi aspect, with the history of every epoch having the dragons reemerge. But on a psychological level, going back to Jungian and Campbell's theory, which is that the the shadow dragon, which lives not only inside us as our inner demons, but as a cosmic dragon, like the darkness of the earth, I think the dragon works really well. What I think it's saying is that this primal evil and dark collective unconscious of the planet will reemerge after every age that has come to consciousness. Because I'm thinking like paganism, Christianity, and now in our time, we're seeing the end of a conscious Christianity. It wasn't like it used to be. It's at the end of its age. So theoretically, this is the time, and it makes sense. It's been 2,000 years. The dragon will reemerge as a warning that consciousness has reached its peak for this layer, whatever you want to call it. And it works for religion, for culture, for belief systems. Everything seems to last about 2,000 years before the consciousness of it is worn out. That's so sad. I mean, it's sad, but it's also, it's a positive tool for the dragon to come out and let us know that. Even though it's a destructive force, originally it was chaos in these origin myths the dragon chaos was very necessary for us to understand that there was an opposite which was order and once we established order we did great things our civilizations blossomed our brains developed we're no longer reptilian we have it in us but now we're higher functioning we're in the age of technology and that's been another 2000 years of progress So every age is going to have that pattern and the dragon will reemerge when we're ready to think of a new consciousness or to start a new consciousness. And I like that. I I like that thought because it's positive versus dragon as negative, something to be vanquished. It's more like a reminder, like this is time. Let's rejuvenate and let's start over with a new religion, a new belief, a new civilization, whatever it is. So I think that movie on a very like psychological scale maybe speaks to that. I like that. I like that there's also room in this film to be able to do things like that. We talked about this a little bit. It does feel like there should be a meaning to the... They're basically mining. He's with his mom who's in charge of this crew that's mining. It almost felt like this could be an environmental thing. Like, this is why we shouldn't be doing this. But it doesn't really follow through with that. That's just something that you could, like, slap on top of it if you wanted to. But there's like enough room in a not unsatisfying way to conjecture different ideas that come from it. Because there's also this idea of the Americans and the English. 
and that Matthew McConaughey was, of course, English. Just kidding. He's American. <laughs> uh, he shows up as Mr. Military Man, which is very American. I mean, this could also talk about different various countries coming together. It could be talking about how first world countries differ and maybe are able to survive in other ways. You know, like there's a million different things you could add to this, which makes it compelling. Exactly. Layers. See what we mean, filmmakers? Layers. And this isn't like Jen said, it's not even a well-known movie. It wasn't praised to be a intellectual apocalyptic movie. But I would call it that because we're reading into multiple layers. And I think that's a great talent to have as a filmmaker. This was actually a huge commercial failure in terms of the film itself. <gasps> yeah, it, it was a real failure, but it became a cult film. It's another dragon film where we have a cult following. And it was actually not that long ago. It was sometime this year. I don't remember when uh, that Matthew McConaughey talked about doing a sequel because they had talked about that a few years after they had made the film, even though it failed. The cult following was like, we should have another one because there's so much to do in this universe. Oh, I see. It's still in the public consciousness, apparently. And dragons are a big part of that. But also, I think it, it kind of goes into that whole phase that we've been in for the last like 20 years of the dystopian film and survival and, and all that fun stuff. So maybe there'll be a sequel and we can do a little mini episode about it. The only upsides are the pets. While other places have ponies or parrots, we have dragons. So we also have another film that we just kind of want to touch on. That film is How to Train Your Dragon. It was by DreamWorks and it came out in 2010. We have a little bit more representation in the film on the back end. One of the editors and the producer are women. I don't know if that means, I can't remember if there was one producer or one of the producers is a woman. <laughs> but anyway, we did it, guys. Time to celebrate. We have two women on the back end of this film. <gasps> two whole women. <laughs> <laughs> so this movie is actually based on one portion of a 12-book series by Cressida, Cressida, Cressida Cowell. And that series has apparently sold more than 7 million copies worldwide, which sounded impressive, but isn't really because like 12 books, I mean, it is, don't get me wrong, but like 12 books and only 7 million for the entire series worldwide seems kind of low. But the first film, so basically this film has a long list of people that will probably sound familiar. Gerard Butler, Craig Ferguson, America Ferreira, Jonah Hill, Kristen Wiig, Jay Baruchel. He's the guy that plays the main dude. Even the main character, and you commented on this when we were watching it, the main character is not a strong Viking. He's a quirky, awkward kid. And to start off like that is great because now he has somewhere to go as far as proving himself useful in another way other than bronze. Yeah, that's the entire emotional plot line, right? Is that his father wants him to be brawn just like him. And instead, he's the brains. He's clever. He's more into research and he's kind of like a newt's commander in that way yes. maybe a little bit more adventurous <laughs> than newt but you know it's that character type 
Absolutely. And then in terms of how the dragons play a role, as far as world building, it feels like a child's version of Dragons of Pern, where it's different species of dragons. They live semi-separately from humans and they their worlds merge and it, at the beginning it's not in a good way it's vikings do want to slay dragons thinking that they are evil and that's it and hiccup is the first one to approach it with new eyes by saving a dragon and not only saving him but because he injures it he has to figure out how and his name is toothless the dragon that he saves is toothless how toothless can fly without a back flank wing and hiccup with his brain figures out and his mechanics figures out a mechanism where he has to ride toothless in order for toothless to fly so we have the symbiotic relationship established and that it becomes contagious within his village because he gets his generation anyway to all become dragon riders by the end they're they're merged which was really really cute i mean i'm glad it's for kids because they're not intellectual dragons they're more like pets in that way but very loyal pets and they end up being a much stronger community together, obviously, than separate. And there's some interesting things with the dragons in this, that that being that the dragons aren't actually the most imp- most powerful creatures in this world. They're actually serving something more powerful than they are. And I think that's different. I, that's not something I feel like I've seen a whole lot. I mean, sort of in, in the Dragon Riders of Pern, but these are like doing its bidding to an even more ancient dragon than they are. And I thought that was an interesting addition to the canon of that universe. But in terms of pets, you know, that does seem to be the theme. When we were watching it, we kind of picked up on like the dragon as being like a horse slash a dog. And then some of the dragon's attributes are kind of like a bat. So there's like a mixing of different traits. And they're they're not very big. They're not the enormous dragons you would see in Dragon Slayer or Dragon Heart or Good point. Yeah. They're just big enough to be ridden, kinda like a horse. I bet you their body size is very horse. Mm-hmm. And then wings, however, is, is different depending on which dragon. Yeah. You're right, though. They're not too intimidating unless you get to the king dragon, which what Jen said is they can't disconnect from that telepathy there. Whereas Until it's destroyed. And Yeah. Or unless somebody else becomes king. Yeah, for sure. Right. So then you have dragons doing the dragon slaying with the humans. Yeah. <laughs> but it's slaying of an even bigger, badder dragon. Yeah, I like An that. older, ancient. And the shifting of loyalties is cool. I really like that they're able to change based on mutual relationships the fact that they're trusting humans and they like that kind of like pets the evolution of a dog right came from that from trusting because there was something to gain on both sides right it's just very cute no wonder it's for children i would if i was young and i watched that i would be like oh my god my world is blown (laughs) and as an adult i enjoy it too I mean, I don't know if my mind is blown, but I definitely enjoy it. (laughs) Yes, and I enjoy it now, of course. Yes, as well. And and I just wanted to say one more thing about the very end. That's sort of the entire point, which we just talked about. But that's sort of the entire point of the movie is that dragons are pets. And he says something about that's the best part of town. You know, he doesn't he doesn't like his town. He doesn't fit in, or he didn't fit in. And in the end, he's like. I made dragons pets, and they're the best part. And I'm like, oh, that's cool. That's, again, like dogs or horses. Like, there's a respect there. 
and everybody's intermixed at that point which is really sort of nice another cathartic ending indeed yes you are Shizu, and you're people what's your name raya I, i'm raya and you're not made of stone which means yeah, it worked we did it you hear that Fengu? it worked i didn't mess it up one more left and you are still listening and with us and we adore you for it thank you raya and the last dragon came out in this year 2021 and looking at the list of names, it's like looking at a completely different world. It's very interesting. Uh, both editors are female. The script was written by a man and a woman. And while I would like to see more women on that list, obviously, many of the names listed are not typically white names. There's a lot of foreign? That doesn't sound right. A lot of different ethnicity? And some. so some of the voices I want to mention, even if we all don't know who these people are, we should. Kelly Marie Tran is actually the main voice, and she's Rose in the new Star Wars films. Aquafina is in it. She's hilarious. Uh, she's a comedian and a rapper. Benedict Wong is in it. He is, you would probably most likely know him from the Spider-Man films. Uh, Sandra O. Oh, of course, is in it. Uh, she's in Killing Eve and Nip Tuck, I think that was her film, and Sideways. She's been in everything. And Louise, Lucille Song is a classic actor. She's a little spitfire. She's kind of fun. So in conclusion of my introduction to this film, it's got good stuff going on. Tell us about it, please. <laughs> so this summary is all of my making. I did not just copy and paste it from Wikipedia because I did not know how to tell it. <laughs> That's not it at all. <laughs> so long ago... In the fantasy world of Kumandra, humans and dragons live together in harmony. However, when sinister monsters known as the Druin threaten the land, the dragons sacrifice themselves to save humanity. Now, 500 years later, those same monsters have returned, and it's up to a lone warrior to track down the last dragon and stop the Druin for good. That is a very short summary, because... It's a very, it's kind of a complicated story. It wasn't very succinct, the plot. Like, it's a little bit muddled. I liked it, and I liked all the different storylines. And in in this film, we have a completely different, I mean, not completely, but it, it's a much different take on the dragon. And at first glance, it kind of looks and acts like the eastern dragon. We see the design. Do you want to tell us a little bit about that? I would like to say that this is the first – well, I, I know they were very specific in picking which culture the story was coming from, and it did feel very Eastern-influenced, even if it wasn't a historically accurate culture. It did feel Eastern, right? Am I crazy? Yeah. Okay. No. Cool. Crazy. <laughs> so it makes sense that the dragon lore they're using is coming from the benevolent cosmic Eastern dragon, which is more like a sea serpent that is – on a higher level as far as intelligence and powers than humans and they affect nature i mean our main dragon herself is a dragon of the water the way that they look in reha and sort of the lore about them as far as i know as a western person who knows nothing about the east it seems like it's definitely more 
influenced by that. For me, I mean, talking about Reign of Fire, you know, they call it a fire dragon. And I, in my Western brain, everything is a fire dragon. So seeing a dragon like this in Rhea that is water oriented is a little like, oh, it's a water dragon, you know, but it's really, it's just like another kind of dragon. I mean, you know what I mean? Yeah. And the fact that they're worshipped and praised by the people rather than feared says something right off the bat. Yeah, I think that's the other huge part about it is that there's more than one dragon. There's a whole slew of them and they're considered protectors. They're for the humans and kind of like in the Dragon Riders of Pern, it's basically like this force, kind of like the thread shows up and the dragons are there to try to stop it because it will destroy everything, including the people, but also, of course, the dragons. And you get this sort of sense of a dragon family, which sounds really corny, but I think they did it pretty well, personally. Agreed. They're all very strong and, like, powerful and confident, and they're going to lose, basically, to this threat. And they know that they're more powerful together, and they give that power to the one that never thought it would be picked, which is Aquafina's character. And that dragon is, like, not sure of herself and not super great with powers and kind of clumsy and, you know, that kind of a character type. And I think that's a really nice change of pace as well. I was telling Charlotte one of the things that blew my mind when I was watching this was that we have, like, a funny female animal sidekick. And we have not had that before. Not like this. I mean, it was hilarious. Like, I, I hope people that did see it liked that because we never see that. And I feel like that was another reason she was chosen. Her golden trait was trust and love of humanity. Her siblings actually tell yeah. her that afterwards. It's like, we knew you would win. I mean, we know you're clumsy and you're a little awkward, <laughs> but that's exactly why it needs to be you. And again, that's another wonderful message to send to children, especially seeing this type of sidekick funny character. And we also get to see some transformation. I guess that was true of like Beauty and the Beast, where you have inanimate objects that are personified. And in this one, it kind of reminds me of that, but it's reversed. So she's a dragon to begin with, and then she transforms into a woman. And we see her as the dragon woman again, which... It's pretty closely associated with a, you know, with a snake woman. And that's a really old and awful stereotype about Asian women, which thank you, J.K. Rowling, for bringing that back. And in this one, it's nice because it's completely breaking that sort of idea or stereotype or whatever you expect it to be. She's not cunning. I mean, she is, but not in that like dark, gross kind of way. I mean, if anything, she's very problematic. <laughs> yeah. The look of these dragons is very particular, too, because they are not intimidating. They're very long. They have feathers, pastel colored. They can smile. Their facial expressions are just dynamic. You know, it's not teeth and it's not wings. There's no wings, by the way. They can walk upright. So it does feel kind of quirky and fun in that way. And and when they're in the water, they're very serpent-like, but magically serpent-like, not scary serpent. And then they do this weird thing where instead of flying with wings, they're using the water and the atmosphere to jump. 
but you can actually see them stepping on water. I thought that was an interesting choice because they could very easily have given them wings and been Western in that way, but they didn't. They very much stuck with the Eastern benevolent dragon. Right. I do want to say as far as concluding on the evolution part pertaining to Rhea, it feels like in the Western world anyway, we're bringing what was once feared, primal, and evil into a, a new light for at least the youth of the Western world. Because introducing an Eastern dragon, I think, is a big deal. And now when you say dragon, a child might picture something very similar to Rhea's universe. If that's an indication that we're being less afraid of our unconscious reptilian darkness, whatever you want to call it, as Jung called it, our repressed selves, that this is a good sign that maybe we're working toward healing in a bigger way. I don't know. We're just throwing things out out there. And maybe less afraid of the feminine, too. Yeah. As we said, that even though there's not huge connections there in the past, that we're making those connections now, and we can use the dragon to promote feminine nature positively. Yeah, that it's something that was buried that needs to be unburied. What other sorts of iterations they can use with the dragon? I I want to know. I, I Yeah. That wasn't a great sentence. I want to know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Obviously, it's not yeah. going away. And what we do with it will change as well based on how society is doing, which direction it's taking. I mean, we're talking positively here, but we really could be regressing in the next few years. Talking about 2,000-year terms, we could be really going downward for all we know. And dragons might be the unconscious of another negative. But whatever it is, it's not going to disappear, is what Jung and Campbell is telling us. Because our stories show that you can't get rid of the dragon, whether it's good or bad. Why slay the dragon when you can become buddies, you know? (laughs) Exactly. Hopefully that's the sign of progress. We obviously want to thank all of you for sticking around for this series. And we have to say thank you to our patrons. That's with an S. We have two patrons now. They're not related to each other or either of us. Uh, One is Jesse Martinez and one is Jeanette Martinez. (laughs) Uh, there's a lot of Martinez's in New Mexico, so. Oh, yeah. Unrelated, for sure. <laughs> a big thank you also to May for joining us and letting us interview her. You're awesome. You can email us at bitethepen at gmail.com. We're on Twitter, Facebook. And if you get a chance, we would really appreciate if you could rate and review or at least just rate us on iTunes. So we'll listen to this quote. Thanks. Thank you. This quote comes from the book Simple Abundance by Sarah Bonbranick. An adventure isn't worth telling if there aren't any dragons in it. Mm-hmm.